Blog Talk Radio. I'd almost said, God, you know, I don't know what I'm, but I said, gosh, 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 darn it. That's not cussing, I guess. So anyhow, it's been nearly 10 years since we started American Tennis Radio. Nearly 10 years. We'll be coming up on it in a few months here, and I don't know what the heck we're going to do. June 2nd of 2012 was the first broadcast and we're keeping it rolling folks and i feel like we're almost back normal whatever normal is but i'm so happy that we've been playing tennis and pushing on through this thing and and it's it feels sort of good it feels sort of good but american tennis each week we want you to stand up speak out say those things that need to be said and uh dag on it uh you know uh People really do need the truth on things, and people believe in this relativism stuff now, that there's no truth. It's sort of your opinion. That's a bunch of bunk. You know that. I mean, I I, uh, I always say address issues, not people. You can say pretty much anything you want to say, address issues, and, and uh, don't cross any of the lines. But we need to stand up, speak out, and say those things we need to do. When it comes to the sport of tennis, we're always trying to grow it. And uh, we're always trying to figure out how to get more people hooked on this wonderful, wonderful game. It's a game that's hard to pick up, but it's extremely hard to put down. Once you start playing it, you'll be playing it for life. And uh, not against other activities, but this is a real sport of a lifetime. And uh, we're trying to do the best we can to to help. This week, I've uh, got Paul, Coach Paul Solis. And I think I could call him Dr. Solis. I guess I could call him Great Mentor Solis. Um, But I think, um, as I try to get him on the line here, Paul, I'm going to – I think Coach is about the best um, thing we could ever say. The only thing I ever wanted to do in my life was to coach. And um, I'd rather be called Coach or Doctor than Doctor or any of those other things. But welcome on to the program today, Paul. Thank you, Coach. Good. Okay, I got you. So, anyhow, I, I want to give you a little bit of a background and ham it up a little bit, and then you can come back and talk about it. But our real reason, if there is a tennis, I don't want to say a tennis encyclopedia of in the, in the state of Texas, but someone who basically has touched just about every avenue of, of teaching, of coaching, of playing, and uh, who really knows the inside and out of it, it's Paul. And uh, we've been friends for, golly, I'm trying to think when we met in Athens, Georgia, was back in the 1980s, so that's been 40 years ago, I think, since you were Bobby McKinley's assistant or something. Wasn't Do you remember what year that was, Paul? I, I coached at Trinity from 81 to 84. We would have met in 81 or 82. 
40 years ago. Now, how in the world did that happen? What the heck? But uh, anyhow, we met then, and uh, absolutely, you were uh, Bob McKinley's assistant there at Trinity, and most people don't know, but the, between the years of 19, I think, 55 and uh, about eight, 75, 80, Trinity was top <clears throat> top five team in the country always, top in and top probably for 30 years there it was the standard and then they uh you know they went to uh, they changed their division and all that things and but uh Paul there were great players came out the McKinley brothers tell me tell me who forget Brian Gottfried um Dickie you know, Stockton uh, Dickie Stockton one day Dickie. at CAA's in 72 who else um Ann Smith uh Brian Gottfried of course, you got to remember Bill Scanlon. He won the NCAs in 1976. Um, John Benson, Tony Jamava. Uh, I'm sure I'm leaving out. Ben all. McCown. Of course, ben, Chuck, ben McCown from of course, Florida. Of course, Chuck McKinley, who won Wimbledon in 63. Uh, ben McCown. Uh, let's see. I'm I'm definitely leaving out some of the women. Paul Gherkin. There's a lot of women and. Um, yep. The great uh, women's coach uh, I'm there. Forgetting, I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting Gretchen Rush. We got to mention Gretchen Rush. She was right. She was a quarterfinalist at the French Open before she even stepped on campus. Wow! And went back to college. Most people don't realize that, but John McEnroe made the semifinals of Wimbledon, folks, and then went back to college. I mean, how rare would that be now? I mean, it, it just. <laughs> Just remarkable, and then I, uh, you know, Todd Dick Stockton, no, sorry, Dick Stockton, we've had on Brian Gottfried, but Dennis Ralston before he passed away, and I mean, he um, he actually won the NCAA's in doubles, then he flew over to Wimbledon and was a finalist, I think, in doubles, after being a college here here in college. So college was uh, was it was absolutely a tremendous stepping stone. It was it was it was very much like the other sports, baseball and football and basketball, where you went to college and you got sort of your training, and then that could take you on, right? So, Paul, I want right. to ask you real quick. We're going to talk about how you started out and how you did, but I, since we're on the topic of mentors that you've had in the state of Texas, I always most of my tennis uh, tutelage or learning that I got when I first out started out and the people who were always eager and ready to help me were the Bob McKinley's, the Tut Bartsons, the Dave Snyder's, uh, the David Kent's at, at uh, Texas A&M. But all, all of those guys were role models. They were eager and ready to try to try to help us. Could you talk about that and some of the people that were mentors for you, you there growing up and everything, and and then we're going to talk about how you got into the thing. Well, I mean, I still to this day consider Bob McKinley my mentor. Um, he gave me my biggest break in the game in the 50 years that I've been in the game by asking me to be his assistant. And I can tell you that my first reaction when he asked me to be his assistant is, "Do you think I can cut it at Trinity? I'm a small town boy from Laredo." And he said, I know your passion for the game. I know what you're all about. What you don't have in experience and knowledge, you'll make up for with your passion. So I said, well, coach, you're not going to have to ask ask me twice. I think I'd love to be here. And that was my greatest break. I mean, I I got my first job out of college is I got to be the men's assistant at a top 10 program in the country and at the same time have head coaching experience with the JV because at that time – you know, the varsity was a Division One program, very, very unique right. situation in that tennis got to compete out of their division. So they were the only number one, uh, only Division One sport they would compete in at that university. And then the JV was a very good program. We played teams all over the state, and I had both the men and women, so I was getting head coaching experience with that level and also getting exposed to a level that, I never played myself when I was in college. Trinity was so far above anything that I would have been able to touch playing-wise. Well, you, you bring up something here. There's a couple things. Developmental coaching 
In other words, the coaching mentorships that we went through, we absolutely need these right now. We absolutely need young people who want to go into coaching, tennis coaching especially. But you're also bringing up the mentoring that went on with players who were not necessarily already made. Right now we have a situation, as you know, Paul, where coaches a lot of times I get I get email after email from overseas and uh you know about hey I'm this and I'm this and I'm a UTR of this and and um these players all it seemed to be searching out UTR chance to get rankings up instead of trying to learn how to play the game. Uh we had uh, when I was coaching at Clemson for all those years, I had three teams. I had the, what they called the orange team, the white team, and the work team. And I had a process of next man in, but you, everybody earned their spot. The lower guys played off every week, and we had the last guy on the JV team trying to bump the varsity guys, and that just sort of kept their hopes alive. But that all went away, and, you know, we could talk about why. But, but just talk about a little bit about how valuable that was, especially – you coming up from we want to, but you coming up from Laredo and being a tennis player, and then getting to work at Trinity University and just having that hope. You think you would have been able to do that now without eighteen levels of certification and a UTR of this and a UTR of that? <laughs> I mean, really, really. <laughs> you know, well, Coach, parents, let, me, I, let me give you a little. Go ahead, go ahead. Let me give you a little background on how all that came to be. Is you know. In Laredo, I guess I couldn't dream big enough to think that I could ever be a college coach or something like that. So my dream was just to get a degree and go back to my high school where I had played because I didn't feel like we had had adequate coaching on the team there. So I was going to go back to my hometown and do my thing there. Well, once I changed my major to kinesiology from uh, journalism and the reason I'd done that is, again, I didn't think that I could really be a coach. So I, I just thought I wanted to write and talk about sports all day. But I got a big break from a gentleman in Laredo that um, he learned that I had not been able to afford lessons growing up. And he invited me to go to Nuke's Tennis Ranch up the street here from San Antonio in New Braunfels, John Newcomb's tennis facility. And um, he invited me to go up there and finally get some one-on-one instruction and so forth. Well, that's when the light went off because I saw a lot of the instructors there and they didn't look like anybody that was going to win Wimbledon. And that's what I'd always thought is I had to be a world-class player to be a coach. So I see these guys that are everyday players and I, a light goes off and says, Hey, you know, I can be a coach. So yes, I'm going to get a degree and go back to my high school and so forth. Never thinking that I'd get on the path to college coaching someday. But even with that in mind, I thought, well, if I'm going to be a coach, then I want to learn from the best. So I, I suck out, I, um, I seeked out, I looked for anybody that I thought could contribute. So I started working every tennis camp I could. I worked at TCU's camp under Tut Bartson. And from there, I got lucky enough to ask Coach McKinley for a job at his camp. And that started getting me a little experience, some exposure that I hadn't gotten down in Laredo into a different kind of tennis atmosphere and then you know that that kind of snowball to eventually where i got fortunate enough to work for dick Gould out at stanford and uh yourself that was that was huge to work at clemson that was huge and all of these things were just magnificent for a guy from laredo that had not been exposed to anything like i eventually got exposed to at all at, at working for all these people those were those were priceless opportunities that I will always cherish. We're, we're so much into the results now. I guess we're <clears throat> headed with this. It's it's unbelievable. It's it's really something the way you have impacted so many lives. I want to talk about your, you know, your small town tennis that you've been teaching. I want to talk, talk about the other things you've been doing. Gosh, your tennis tech running the tennis tech program. But but here's my point. There's a saying that you, when you coach is that you keep fog on top of the mountain until the kids are too high up to turn back. All right, that absolutely not knowing sometimes how hard things are is very, very important in, in the journey that we make. 
You know, there's, we know there's going to be obstacles, but 100% of the time, I used to argue in meetings and faculty meetings and things, and so, no, we've got to figure out what we need to do, then you work backwards and solve the problems. On the other hand, you know, these people say, oh, but you have this problem, oh, but you have that, but you're not certified here, but you have that, but you, and they find 18 reasons why you can't do something. So we have kids sitting in Tweenerville right now, not going after greatness, not seeking out greatness. We have people say, no, I can't do that. And, and it's not because they're different, Paul. It, it's mainly because they they are all, they have the, all these rating systems and everything, and we've got, and we do things because we can, but not because we should. You know, I mean, people, you had people that were saying, no, go do that, go do that, you can do this, you can do this. And, you know, and Bob McKinley saw something inside of you that, that was, is, is cannot be taught. The other stuff can be taught, but the passion and the heart for it cannot be taught. So I, I really worry about this UTR thing. It, it, there's got some value to it, but my golly, you wouldn't believe it. I don't know any of my players' UTRs, and I don't know any of my recruit, recruits' UTRs, and I'm not going to. I just know when a player's good and when they're not and when they have a heart and when they don't. So any any thoughts on all that? I mean, you know, so. Well, of course, I'm working with a lot of kids that um, are always concerned about their UTRs, and I try to strongly encourage them to leave that in their parents' hands. And that, and then I tell the parents, do not be telling your kid when he moves down. Only tell them when it's something positive, and definitely don't be telling them the UTR of anybody they're about to play. Because all they're going to think about is, can I move up or can I get penalized for not beating this person by a certain score? And, (laughs) Coach, you know know that all these kids have to take chances and risks, and they got to practice the things that they've learned in their lessons and so forth in competition before they can own it. And if they're so scared about always losing – a game here and there because it's going to affect their ranking, their rating and all that, then I don't know when they get a chance to put that into practice. Sure. They can play a few practice matches outside of a tournament, but it's not the same. It's you've got to do it in actual competition that really means something to you. And then, you know, let's say I've been helping somebody with serving volley and they haven't been willing to try it. Well, if they don't have to worry about losing a game here and there, that's the time to try it. They're playing somebody that they're much better than. They're not scared of losing games because it's not going to affect their rating. Now they they practice it a little bit. So, you know, it it's a, a situation. I mean, I know college coaches, you're one of the few that I've ever heard that does not know their players' rating. Nowadays, college coaches, that's what it's all about. I have a girl that wanted to play college tennis, and the first thing she received back from that coach is, if you're not a 9.0, we don't even bother to talk to you. Well, you know, that's that's what's taken over as far as college coaching. I mean, that, I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. I'm simply saying in a matter-of-fact way, that is their barometer. That's what they measure somebody by. And the, and the kids know that. And if they want to play college tennis, that's where their focus is because that's how things have gone. But I don't care for it because it simply does not allow the kids to enough freedom to practice things that they may not have mastered yet. Nor, nor fall in love with the sport, Paul. Part of falling in the sport, love with the sport, is having your heart broken. You only have love after you've had your heart broken. We all know that through life. If things are easy true. to pick up, they become, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> oh, they, I said, they that's become, true. That's true. It's, you know, if, if we've suffered through something, we tend to hold on to it a little bit more. We we surely do. If it's easy to pick up, it becomes easy to put down. Hard to pick up is hard to put down. I've said that a thousand times on this program. And it's the mistake we're making is that it, it's we're glorifying results in all of the sports. My golly, what college sports are going to become now with this, what, what the heck is that, IRLI, whatever, image, likeness, whatever thing. And then... Right. Uh, portal where the kids can jump ship and you know and they can just leave and go somewhere where the grass is greener and it's never greener somewhere else you know you still have wherever you go i was taking telling a youngster yesterday 
wherever you go, you take yourself with you. You know, you, you, you always take yourself with you. So you're exactly right. So we don't have kids falling in love with the sport. We have them chasing things that they can get out of the sport, and that's never good. That would be like a relationship you have. You know, you marry someone or something that, hey, it's what I can get out of this person, or, hey, you're my friend because I can get something out of it. Well, that doesn't last. You know, it, you know the, the sport of tennis is much deeper, and I think we're barking up the wrong tree. The UTR, it would be good if you know your own maybe, but never, folks, family, parents, never, ever, ever check out the other kid's UTR. I don't. If I'd have checked out, you know, we had a we played and had a very nice win yesterday. A very very well coached team and tough tough team. And 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 if I checked out everybody's UTR, I might have been oh my god, oh my god, you know. And it's stupid. Right. It's stupid, you know. And even recruiting, yep. I don't know. I just know when you just as with experience. So I want to get back to your mentors because I'm going somewhere with this today. I want to talk about the sleeping giants in uh, in the sport of tennis for the United States. And beside the things that we can do, I want to talk about people like you. We need a Paul Solis in every state. We need a Paul Solis, a Dan Vonk. We need you know, Dan Vonk down there in South Georgia, Kingsland, Georgia. We need, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, daggone uh, people in every state every state that really are impacting the you know the state with with uh what they do with other children so talk about when you started out okay you you came from laredo and you just said hey i want to learn more about this and so you got hired at one camp and then you at nukes and then you say hey i might be able to do this so what did you do did you just start calling the coaches who are running camps and talk about no, each one of them no. Tut Bartson and um, go ahead well i knew Tut Bartson ran a tennis camp and I just wrote him a letter and told him my background a little bit. And, uh, and then he was nice enough to open that door. And then this is a very, very unique situation. How I ended up getting the Trinity job. And I'll, I love telling the story is <clears throat> the Trinity university sent some of the tennis players down to Laredo, Texas to play at the one club that was down there at the time. And Somebody got the great idea that the two local stars, myself and a guy by the name of Oscar Nieto, should play the Trinity players that were going to do an exhibition, that we should play them in doubles. So, Coach, you can appreciate this. Here's a good old Laredo boy that did well just to get a scholarship at Laredo Junior College, and we're going to get on the court and play doubles against Larry Gottfried and Eric Skursky. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're I'm kidding me. <laughs> You no, are kidding me. Okay, so Eric Skirsky <laughs> no. was runner-up in four sets. I was courtside with Dave Snyder. Ten, Kevin Curran beats Eric Skirsky in four. They played three out of five sets, folks, in the finals of the NCAA. Trinity University, that's one of the greats you forgot to talk about, Eric Skirsky. Yep. <laughs> so so, he so said, anyway, okay. at this point, I've already decided I'm going to be a tennis coach, and I want to go to every tennis camp that I can to learn from these guys. Well, of course, Bob McKinley was the guy that brought those two players down, you know. And I was not shy. I've never been shy, coach, and especially when it comes to my tennis. I, I was focused, and if I saw something that was going to help me, I did not back down. So I went right up to Bob McKinley, and I said, hey, coach, um, I'm one of the players that's going to be playing against your team there, and I just wanted to know if there's any way you could give me a job at your tennis camp. And he says, oh, well, uh, how about I watch you play, and then we'll talk about a job at the camp. And I said, well, I was hoping we could seal the deal before I have to play your players. This isn't going to be pretty. <laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. Okay. So go ahead. You're having, and he, okay. and so he, and he you says, have, don't, don't, don't worry about a thing, you know, just – do your thing, you know? And I said, all right. So I play and I come up to him afterwards and I said, I told you it wasn't going to be pretty. And uh, he says, no, you're fine. You're fine. Why don't you write me a letter and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. Well, I wasn't going to pass up this opportunity. So this match had been on a Saturday afternoon and I went home right away and followed up and wrote him that letter and told him that I would be honored and that I had a goal of being a tennis coach someday and just to be in that environment I knew would help me tremendously, and I mailed it on that Saturday. Well, 
Coach McKinley gets to the office on Monday morning, and from Laredo to San Antonio, it wasn't a problem to get there. So he said when he got to his office, and that letter was in his mailbox already on Monday, he said, this guy's got a job. He, he had, he, if he had the drive to, the, you know, the desire to get that letter to me right away, he's got a job. I don't know about him, but he's got a job. Well, I took it from there, and I, was his assi- I, I worked the camp for seven years, and then, well, I, let me take that back. I'd worked the, the camp for four years. I, I did it a total of seven years, but after four years, I'd already worked the camp, and I got my degree, and every, every summer, I'd still go work for him. So here I am in July, and I've got my degree, and he says, Solis, what are you going to do in September? And I said, I don't know. I haven't even figured it out, and I don't even care at this point because I did not want to go into the high school anymore because I didn't want to go into the classroom. I had to pick a minor, and I just picked it because I had to have a minor. So I hadn't figured out that I couldn't be just a tennis coach at the high school level. I was going to have to go into the classroom, and I wasn't looking forward to that. So I was thinking maybe the club route. Well, right there I got lucky. That's when McKinley says, well, I got, I got an assistant position I should offer you, and I already told you that story. So that's how that went down, and I, that was my first job out of, out of college. And like I said, it was a blessing. But by that time, I'd already worked for Tut and Nukes and other people, and, and being around coach all those summers at the tennis camp, I'd gotten to feel a little bit more of the game and so forth. But, um, but uh, I'll, I'll follow this up. So being assistant at, at, uh, with the varsity, people just assumed that I could play a little bit. And I'll never forget the day that the Wilson rep showed up because, of course, he wanted some of those Trinity players playing with their rackets and we're going off to lunch, and the Wilson rep says to me, well, you know, if you're the assistant coach here, you must be quite a player. Well, that wasn't the case at all. I was, I was Coach Gopher in those days, but I wasn't complaining. This was an apprenticeship, right? But Coach McKinley thinks he's going to save me, and I, I tell this rep, I said, no, no, I can't hang with these guys. They're, they're totally out of my league. And McKinley thinks he's going to save me, and he says, yeah, but he's got world-class speed. <laughs> And I said, see, nobody's talking about my racket skills. But compared to those guys at Trinity, there wasn't too many guys that had those kinds of racket skills. So anyway, it was a big opportunity for me. And, um, and it all started with, like you said, just getting on the path of people hoping, uh, me hoping that these people would help me develop as a coach. And, you know, to be around somebody like Tut Bartson, who went 15-0 and in Davis Cup play, you know I had a lot to glean from him. Well, to talk about that, I mean, every person, Bob McKinley, he was my age group, actually. We were juniors, seniors in high school at the same age, so he was the winner at Kalamazoo, and then, of course, he got to 50 in the world as a player. His brother won Wimbledon, and they all, oh, gosh, have you ever talked to Bob about learning how to play in St. Louis, and, and the coach, his name was Bill, gosh, I always forget his name. Bill what? Price. Bill, Bill Price. Price. Bill Price, folks, in St. Louis, Missouri. Bill Price had those kids play ping pong for one year. Did Bob's told you that story, hasn't he? Yep. Yep, definitely. Uh, and, and he said you, then you would go out on the court and you had, you sort of knew how to rally and the rhythm and everything, and then you would play. But he said we were even playing tournaments to learn how to compete against somebody, and it just was a great head start. But, uh, wow. What, what a good well, story. Well, I'll take it but... a little further than that, Coach. I'll take it a little further than that. He wouldn't just have them go play tournaments. I mean, McKinley was ranked in the nation ping-pong-wise. And then when he got them that good, and he said, we're done. All of this was so it would carry over to the tennis court. But uh, McKinley said he played so much ping-pong, he got sick of the sport. He wanted to know when tennis was coming. So when he heard Price say, okay, you know, we've reached the national level. You're Now we're done with this. And and it was all with the idea to graduate him into tennis. Now consider that mentorship as far as learning a sport, whether it's music or art or tennis, looking at tennis as an art form, as opposed to chasing points, chasing UTR rankings, and chasing that things. And I blame, there's a, well, I don't want to go into that, but, but not honoring the history and the heritage of our game enough. Our kids don't grow up knowing who, you know, Bill Price was or 
cut Bartz and her Bob McKinley. But let's talk about the lessons you learned there. Bob McKinley, uh, one of the best human beings ever. I remember I was starting out, and he was, uh, you know, my peer group, so I wasn't ever a national player, but I knew of Bob McKinley, and, and then I'm coaching against him, and he treated me like a brother always, and uh, just a great man. Tut Bartson, talk about the mentoring you got from Tut Bartson. Well, that wouldn't be as much because I only worked for him that one summer up at his camp, but I roomed with a guy by the name of Casey Miller, who was – uh, Tut Bartson's son, Tut Bartson Jr., they were very, very good friends. So when I was rooming with Casey Miller, he was telling me all the Tut Bartson stories. And that's where I learned quite a bit. You know, he, he would tell me how, how uh, Tut was a creature of habit and was so disciplined. He said air, after every practice, he would go and run his half mile, jog it, never, never, um, didn't matter what speed he was doing it, but you know, I, I remember reading the same thing about Tom Landry. These guys are guys of discipline, you know. Regardless of what had happened, they were going to get their little exercise in, so he'd get his little jog in. Then the other thing that he told me about Tut Bartson was um, the man never missed mass in the number of years that Casey had known the family, and he was very, very close to the family. He says, Tut went to mass religiously and never missed it, you know. So, again, that discipline that he had. Then, then this is when I remember we, he was talking to the kids one day and he's doing his thing. He's doing the demo that we all do at a camp, you know, for the kids and so forth. And the kids kept looking over and watching these other guys play. And these guys were, you know, average players, hackers, right? And, and, uh, Tut got a little put off by that fact that they weren't giving him his full of undivided attention. So he says to him, Hey, I'm talking to you here. If you want to watch that stuff over there and follow the the wannabes in this sport, go right ahead. But what I'm offering you here is something that will take you very far in this game. Give me your ears. <laughs> so I thought that was great, you know, like pick pick your pick your mentors well, you know, pick your guidance well. And then another one that he he shared with me was uh he said that he was playing, you know, remember Tut was a world-class player, and he decided to play a local tournament. And Casey tells me that Tut is playing this guy that is dressed up to the nines, has all the Fila clothes, and he has a headband on. And Tut is, you know, doing his thing, just like a machine. I understand he was a clay court specialist, and he could hit those ground strokes all day. So here's this guy that, you know, as John Peterson would have called him, Joe Bag of Donuts. He's playing Tut Bartson, and every time Tut is hit, every time Tut is hitting one of these basic, outstanding shots, this guy's calling Tut lucky, and can't believe how lucky this guy's getting. Apparently, he didn't know who Tut was. So, you know, Casey said he loved this because, of course, Tut was one of the most humble men you're ever going to meet, right? But mm-hmm. He got tired of hearing this guy call him lucky. So when they were shaking hands, Tut says to him, when you go 15-0 in Davis Cup play, you come back and call me lucky, okay? Wow. Then that, that's very brash for, for Tut. I mean, Tut would never, Oh, I know. Never, I know. Ever. I mean, but that, that, he must have gotten under his skin. I, that, you know, That's why Casey said it was such an amazing story because you would never hear – Tut say anything about himself. I mean, when he was presenting himself to the kids at the camps and all that, you would never know that he had any kind of background that he did. He beat he beat Rod Laver on the way up when Rod came over to the United States. Remember the Colonial Country yeah. Club that Tut used to be the pro. It was Clay Courts, and Tut decided to play in his own tournament. And Rod Laver was a youngster at that time, and. If I remember correctly, I hear something like Clay, uh, Tut beat him one and one. Yeah. So, you know, we're, there's, we're talking there's a, a different level of player there. There's a thing I talked to a good, my good friend Robert Davis, who's uh, done such a fantastic job over in Cambodia, actually with kids and tennis, and just great work for over there for a lot of years. And he's over there, and he'll call me and he say, he said. Coach, I understand why these missionaries usually have a great life and they always finish well. He said they never put the messenger ahead of the message. Tut never put 
himself ahead of the message that he was delivering ever ever exactly, he was just yeah. a humble you know and and you know he oh gosh what a what a great gem of a man if i could tell a quick story about tut we had a young player coming up and when you're young and as a coach as a coach probably 10 or 12 years into it i'm trying to prove myself so hard you know i'm just want to be validated you know and that's a dangerous thing when you're playing playing for validation or trying to coach for validation, that's a trap. And I, I feel like I got in that a little bit. But, and I was around these people, but I never will forget, we were down at the University of Texas in Austin, and I had this really talented young player, and they playing at this this tournament down there. I don't know what it was what at that time, but uh, it was a big tournament. But Tut, we had played Tut's player. And it was Tut's like five or six player, and you know Tut's players they they didn't miss a ball. I mean, they, on target they would make six balls, you know. And I, I'll tell you a story, Kalamazoo, what he told me one time too. But Tut Tut's guys didn't, but he cut my player to bits, and he beat my player like one and zero oh or one and one. Afterwards, I was just devastated. Here was a big opportunity with this talented young guy, and I'm, I'm underneath the University of Texas Stadium there. How you'd walk out, and I'm just beside myself sitting there. And Tut comes up, and he sort of, Chuck, are you okay? He said, I, I, I said, you know, t- uh, Coach Bartson, I must be the worst coach that ever lived. I, I've been trying to, get, you know, he just came up and gave me some words of advice, you know, and he's. I think he said something like, "Well, all I could, you know, you got to get into points to play points." He, he said something very profound, you know, about, and then I realized, "Oh yeah, his guy never missed the first three balls." And then I talked to Tut that go. summer. It was in the you know the early '90s. It was crazy with tennis how people were just sort of slapping. All of a sudden, these high tech rackets players would just check out of points. They couldn't keep balls in play. I was with Tut at Kalamazoo. I said, well, what do you do? He said, well, I use dead balls to practice all the time. He said, I make our guys, and then I play air games to where the first thing, biggest start I look for is people can keep the ball in the court. He said, all these kids are slamming pretty good. <laughs> he said, and I, and I just, oh, okay, wait a minute, maybe. So that's the kind of stuff you remember, and, and so – that's great. Clarence Mabry, real quick. Clarence Mabry, I refer to all the time because in 1980, I was at the uh, Roosevelt Hotel, New York City, National Teachers Conference, gosh, 42 years ago, but I still remember he gave this great talk, and somebody said, Coach Mabry, what's the most important quality of a championship tennis player? And I've said this. I used to have this quote on the front of the booklet I gave my campers. And I still have it like when I give a talk. The most important quality of a championship tennis player is the hunger of an inquisitive mind. Huh. <laughs> Isn't that good? I <laughs> like so it. Talk, I like it. Yep. Talk about talk about Clarence a little bit and your experience there with Clarence. Well, I have only a couple of firsthand experiences with Clarence. Those came when I was working at Nukes Tennis Ranch. If you remember, he was John Newcomb's tennis can- uh, coach at one time. And then um, he and he and um, John Newcomb had a vested interest, like they were proprietors with John Newcomb's tennis ranch. So he was, he was at the ranch quite a bit, much more than Newcomb. And um, <clears throat> by this time, I have a little bit of that inquisitive mind going. And I knew that Clarence Mabry was a big one in the game, right? So you remember Clarence? He had a such a happy-go personality, right? And I'm I'm over here trying to pick his brain, and it was not easy because he always was jovial and joking, you know. And I'd done my reading on the game, and I thought, all right, Clarence is from uh, Pancho Segura's um, era. I wanna I wanna know why Pancho Segura is considered to have the greatest stroke of all time—that two-handed forehand, right? But I, all I'd ever done was read about this stroke, but I didn't know how to break down a stroke or what to look for at that time. So I'm trying to pick Clarence's brain, and I'm 100% serious. And I said, Clarence, did you ever see Segura play? And he says, of course. And I said, uh, I understand that um, he had the greatest stroke of all time, that two-handed forehand. 
why why was it? And I'm thinking he's going to give me a big analytical answer. And he says, because it was. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, Clarence, I'm, I'm trying to learn something here, man. <laughs> and that's as far as he'd go with it, because it was. Now, uh, that's... A, a much... <laughs> I got a better one for you, though, that was more of a learning experience. And, again, remember, I was awfully green at this time. So I was watching a match with him one time, and he was two of the kids at at the ranch and two of the better players, you know, and I didn't know how to break down a match yet. So I'm I'm just watching. Of course, he's watching with a different set of eyes than I am because of his experience. And he says, Paul, this match has gotten close. He says, but it's not at all because of the player making a comeback here that it's gotten close. He said, it's just because the one that was in the lead has lost his focus. He thought this match was over, and I saw his level of play drop. And now all of a sudden the other guy has caught up. It's not because the other guy started doing anything better. And I thought to myself, wow, I still got a lot to learn because I didn't see any of that that he just broke down for me. So I remember thinking, you know, I still got to keep learning. Got to keep, he's seen the, the mind, the, the match differently with his eyes than I could see with my, my eyes. Now, in a complimentary way, years later, and this just happened within the last five years, I was at the U.S. Open and I'm watching Federer and um, there was a girl that I met there and she had told me that it was on her bucket list to see Fetter play in person. And this is when, you know, we were just working our way into the match. Well, later on I saw her and she was in the first row. She had worked her way down. So I went there and sat with her and I said, so was it the bucket experience that, that you thought it was, or it was going to be? And she was, oh, it's that and more. So I kept sitting there with her and then I just said a couple of things that I noticed about better what he was doing and she says you know I wish I could see the match that you're seeing I wish I could appreciate everything that he's doing mm-hmm. and I thought wow this has come full circle <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but I was admiring in in uh, Mabry somebody that was just you know a, a tennis fan was hearing what I was seeing in, in the Fetters game and I thought yeah this is pretty cool come full circle <laughs> well here the I'm leading you here for the next five or eight minutes. I'd love for you to talk about tennis tech. I don't think we have students of the game as much anymore, and I'm put it on those who those of you listening. If you're in leadership, the USTA or ITA or anything, the, the developmental part of this is more important than playing matches. To get it over, I call it get it over with scoring. Now that we use, just get it over with. Get it over with. Try to make it exciting and get it over with. And we hope a little learning takes place. Well, our our kids are not seeking out the history and the heritage of the game and learning uh, just the hunger that you're describing. And the same thing, I've been in tennis my whole life because of the depth of it, these these great people. That that being said, you know we could you know there's nothing to say except our leaders have to be a little bit deeper thinking than just hey we got to make a profit, we got to make it popular in, in all our sports. Our sports are maybe the last bastion of immediate learning opportunities where it's it's on the job and it's quick and our kids kids get to learn this, but it's making the sport a lifetime. You were at Tennis Tech, I think, eight or nine years, I think. And I was there 11 the years. Work, I stayed there 11 years. 11 years. 11 years. 89, Tennis 89 to 2000. Tremendous, okay, with uh, and then John, the great John Peterson, who has won many national championships at Tyler Junior College there. But that was a developmental process. And when I figured out those kids and how into tennis they were and what they tried to learn, I tried to hire them each summer for my camp. And there were, there were no – and no one else that would come in off the tour – or college players were as hungry to learn and, and to teach as that. Can you talk about that experience and that whole experience? Now, we've got programs right now, I think, at Methodist in North Carolina. We have a, a tennis tech type program, and then up in Michigan. And is the, the one in Tyler still going tennis tech, Paul? They sun, they sunset it this year. It's the first year they haven't had it now. Oh, no. That's, that's, that's a yep. shame. 
That's that's yeah. a shame. It was the best program there was. And these organizations, like, look, PTR, USPTA, you guys want to be exclusive, you know, and you want to um, – I, I give you lectures. Any of you guys call me, please. Give me lectures, but you've got to be educators first and, and marketing people second, okay? That's as, as much as I can say about that. But talk about the tennis tech program was a two-year associate degree, and t- talk about the curriculum and what you did there, Paul. Um, it was a two-year degree in recreation with a specialization in teaching tennis, and um, of the of the 60 hours that they were required to get that associate's degree, 30, 30 of those hours came specifically from tennis. So some of the class classes were titled uh, Tennis Teaching, the Scientific Approach. There was Sports Psychology. There was Motor Learning. There was uh, Programming, where the kids learned how to run every type of tournament. Um, let me think. Those were the major ones right there. Um, trying to think of – oh, and then, of course, there was lab. Everything that we discussed in the classroom, they had two hours of, of time on the tennis court, and that's where I would teach them how to break down a stroke and look at the video analysis of what we'd gotten done. on the. They'd analyze each other's strokes, and then the wonderful thing is we would invite other uh, elementary schools from the surrounding area, and they would get hands-on teaching by teaching the kids in the morning that were, you know, just up the street. We would get all those kids to, to have an opportunity to teach as well. Then we would – we would run a, a continuing education class through the junior college so that the kids could have experience working with adults. So I always felt like it was a great program that would help anybody that hadn't been a great player, but could become a, a very, very good instructor because they'd studied how things, how things were done. And I, I felt totally confident sending those kids out into the real world and uh, many of my friends here in Texas would would hire them, knowing that they were proven quantities. You know, they were they'd talk among themselves and say, "If we can get those kids, we really like getting them because they they already have the background when they get to us. They have teaching experience, they have the theory, and and then I always felt like like anything they were going to grow with experience. But at least the very first job they had, they had already some background and weren't just experimenting as they went along with without a doubt i've never met more committed <clears throat> teachers and things and of course you you sent me up, up to my camps i was running just just from some great people and uh, i again i wanted to uh, we've got about 10 minutes i'm going to talk about the sleeping giants where we can do something to help um help grow the tennis here in the United States. And I always end up scolding our organizations, the bureaucracies of the USTA. It's made up of very, very good people, but bureaucratical people usually, they go, as far as levels of commitment, they will go to, on a 1 to 10, they'll go to a 7, maybe an 8 now and then. I always say cliches, facts, opinions, feelings, needs as a teacher. They'll do cliches and some facts, and they'll throw a few opinions in there. But they, they work for a bureaucracy. It's like state-run organizations. We're doing top-down now management of tournaments, too, throughout the country. And this, even though this seems organized to those computer specialists who do this, USTA likes everything look tidy and neat and everything. Well, the problem is they've disempowered your grassroots. Your grassroots people are being treated like you know, robots now, and they're, they're really not empowered. You have, they have to go through a lot to fight for a slot that the USTA goes. It used to be that if you were an individual in Tyler, Texas, or in Florence, South Carolina, you could create a tournament and you could build it up, build it up, build it up to where it became one of the best tournaments that there was. When we went to head-to-head rankings and we, we did those things, it was bottom-up. <clears throat> now, we I end up scolding the USTA a lot and. The ITA, uh, don't get me started on that one, because that's just a um, it's an union organization that basically has fed off of college tennis and became important in college tennis, but 
we, we coaches don't work for the ITA. We work for the our colleges. We work for our, our conferences and the NCAA. But they have sort of moved in and bullied everybody into doing abbreviated scoring. We call it get it over with scoring. And then they, they try to hype things very much through through the product instead of the process, the learning process. Consequently, we have a very, very, I just want to say messed up college system. But the sleeping giants are, number one, people like you, Paul. But the other thing, small town tennis USA, I usually talk about. I talk about inner city, that the USTA does too much for the inner city, not enough for small town tennis. They can't figure out that formula. But with places like Tennis Tech, they sure could. They could put people into small towns and say, cut it loose. You get 200 bucks a week, son. Go get it done. You're in charge. Young people from the ages of 22 to 25, 26, they, would, they could thrive as they learn there. High school tennis, Paul, as you know, is an after-school program, after-school activity in everywhere except Texas. I'd like for you to briefly talk about that. College, we're not doing the job we should. We, it, it's dwarfed. We're not turning out, with very, very few exceptions, there are no Gretchen rushes anymore. There are no uh, players, <laughs> Scanlons, uh, coming up through the ranks. 23 to 35 years old, we have nothing for, for players after they, they're finished college. And, of course, our senior citizen tennis. I talked to uh, one of the guys down at the USTA this morning. I called. I've been calling to try to explain to them that seniors are not playing tennis. They're going to this pickleball thing, which is sort of the mini, just like miniature golf. Folks, come on now. Miniature golf or golf, pickleball or tennis. There's the correlation. Now, the thing is, the reason why is the symmetry's been all messed up uh, with the high-tech rackets. They have to solve the symmetry problem and do it in a way that won't embarrass seniors. You can't use the kitty ball, green dot ball. You have to make a different ball. Like I'm going to – he, the guy recommended this morning to call – I'm going to call Dunlop and Wilson and talk to them about my ideas. Paul, I want you to talk about the sleeping giant of small-town tennis and what you're doing there and what other people could do, and what you're doing in a small town there. All right, Coach, I'm going to address that. But if I may, I was remiss. Go ahead, I forgot in. a very important class with Tennis Tech. I, John Peterson would always teach that philosophy of coaching for us, and I always thought the kids were just very, very fortunate to be hearing from somebody like uh, Coach Peterson. I gleaned a lot. I think I think that was – you know, we're talking about as I was growing up, I learned and learned from people, but just getting to work side by side with Coach Peterson. And and the reason I also wanted to mention is, remember, we used your book, Total Tennis Training, in that class. So as far as I was concerned, they were learning from Creasy and Peterson in that class. So I would be remiss if I didn't mention that was another class we had in our curriculum. Now, well, back you. to your sleeping giants. Um, well, as, as far as I'm concerned, being from Laredo, I grew up in a small town, and, you know, I was ignorant. I was ignorant of all the things that are out there. And if I had to do it over, I've said there's one thing I would do differently, and that's I'd find a way to make that two-and-a-half-hour drive up here to San Antonio and get some quality instruction. But I'm doing it backwards. See, you're talking about quality instructors going to the small towns and and making that's them aware of our sport and all the opportunities that it, it provides, you know, I just think one of the greatest things that I've gotten lucky enough out of tennis is all the traveling that I've done out of it. And I remember somebody telling me, if you look at a tennis racket, it looks like a key. It's shaped like a key, and it's the key to the world. If you approach it properly, it can take you in so many directions. So all these small towns that, like, I'm, I'm teaching right now at a place about 45 minutes away from San Antonio. It's Lavernia, Texas. And I am loving working with those small-town kids. Lavernia has something like 1,800 people in it, but it's got one high school, and they, they want to learn. And the fact that I'm willing to go down there, they're so thankful because they're just a little different than people that have those opportunities in their own backyard all the time. And they are all yes, sir, no, sir type of kids, and it's a joy to work with them because you feel like you're really being appreciated, not that. My San Antonio kids aren't, but somehow those Lavernia kids just seem to be a little more appreciative. 
and I'm enjoying opening doors for them. I, I'm proud to say that one kid from Lavernia just finished signing to go to play his four-year college tennis, and I don't know oh, that he would have done that without without the opportunity to do as well as he did in high school and find and find out that he really had a passion for the sport. So, Paul, yes, there's Paul. plenty to be said for what you're talking about. Yeah, Paul, you know, over 70, I think 74% of professional athletes come out of small towns under 50,000 people because there's a hunger there for sports. There's not a lot to do. Sports thrive. Well, they were talking about football, basketball, baseball. But tennis, you, everybody feels you need an expert there. My idea was to get, you know, the number six, seven, eight guy off of, off of um, a college team and say, look, son, we got an internship for you here in uh, Kingsland, Georgia. You know, where the great Dan Vonk is the high school coach, but he wants somebody down there to help out. You know, and uh, these towns are where you find these kids that are hungry and they haven't been diluted, polluted, or prostituted yet with so many things and they're rushing around the tournaments and staying in hotels. And I wanted to say if I had been running, you know, if, in, in, you know, tennis tech, I'm going to try to recommend to these other tech places, why don't you try Small Town Tennis USA? Maybe we can do that through the Methodist uh, universities. And uh, what's what's the one up in uh, Michigan again, Paul? Fair State. Fair State. Fair, Fair State. State, yeah. And, and they've done a fantastic job over the years. But we need that. That, we're barking up the wrong tree when we send people into the inner city all the time. And I know they need to play tennis too, but most inner city kids want to stand out and get out. You know, or, you know or, I'm sorry, stand Stand out, and they usually do. They look. They look around at the, the sports, and you know, tennis is not not their first. It probably ranks thirteenth or eighteenth. But tennis is special for to a, some of the small town kids here, and and uh, it can matter. One person can matter. A high school coach. I have. A, I'm recruiting right now a, a young man from a small small town, and you know, I actually has a, a parent. It's a high school coach, and. You know, all those ingredients, we talk about the hunger and the willingness to drive to practice and, the, and all of the stuff that is needed for someone to love the sport lifelong, you know, is, is there. It's not just something where you chase points, become popular, and get rankings, you know. So that, that it's, it's fantastic. Uh, the thing about the key to the world, I'm going to use that with my team today, actually. You know, you know somehow I'm going to figure it out, but that's that, that's, that's just... That's no, it's it's fantastic. I I just um, I love that you you are absolutely a teacher first. So top down management. Um, any last things as we have a few minutes here? I know I forgot something I wanted to ask you. You know your mentors and everything, Paul. But the ultimate sleeping giant are people like you in the community, and I I thank you for that. Um, uh, I'm just looking at my notes here. Gosh, I got scribble. I can't read my writing anymore. <laughs> But um, the tennis UTR thing we've talked about, oh, I want to give a shout-out to one of your students, Jason Haynes, okay? Yes. He started, uh-huh. he started the UR Tennis Network, and, and he was the one who gave me the opportunity years and years ago. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, Jason, yep. if you still listen, if you ever listen, thank you, man. Thank you for uh, – creating this he, you know he, and, uh, he was a hungry one he was definitely a hungry one he um he went and did uh some college coaching out of um and he went over to texas state university where i coached from 86 to 89 the women there and and had a lot of success and as a matter of fact that's where coach peterson saw me and saw the job that i'd done there and said you need to join us over at tyler junior college so you know, it's if you want a closing statement, I consider myself very, very blessed. I feel like I'm doing exactly what I was meant to do. I I love using tennis as a a method of impacting life for the kids, and you know, I'm just I'm just grateful that I feel like I've never had to work a day in my my life. I just enjoy sharing the one thing that I feel I can share with people. And fortunately, after 50 years, I still have a passion for it. I'm I'm loving life because of tennis. Yeah, likewise, Paul. I mean, it's just uh, beyond belief how fortunate we are to have been in this sport, and and it's fortunate that uh, listen, keep 
You've always been healthy and everything. Keep it rolling. Keep passing it on. I'm going to try to keep doing the same, you know, and, and just thank you, Paul. I appreciate you being on today. Okay? I right, thank we'll you, Coach. You. Thank you very much. And we'll see you all next time. I want to remind you that you're in the process of winning or losing every day of your life, and it has very little to do with a win or a loss. I want to thank Paul, Coach Paul Solis, uh, that's better than calling him President Paul Solis or Doctor. Being a coach is the most honorable profession out there. And you coaches, keep on doing it and keep passing on. God bless you all, and we'll see you next week on American Television. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.